Thank you, Taylor and Mitchell. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Austin. I'm on staff here at the church, and we are continuing and getting towards the end of our uh, series in the book of Luke. So if you could join me opening your Bibles or if you've got an app or something like that, you can follow along. We're in Luke chapter 12. And the question this morning is, what are you striving for? What is that thing that you're chasing after? That if, you, if you had got it, you'd finally have arrived. You'd finally be able to cease from, from all of your work and your striving. In this passage, Jesus contrasts for us two different images of people seeking after something. So the first one is prompted by an unusual interjection. So in verse 13, chapter 12, Jesus is speaking and teaching, and suddenly someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So why is this man interjecting? Well, uh, a little bit of background here. The Mosaic law for inheritance was that if you had uh, um, a, a family, right, the eldest brother would get a double portion of the inheritance. So say you just have two brothers, keep it simple. You divide the inheritance into three portions, the eldest brother would get two of those portions, so two-thirds of the inheritance, the youngest brother would get one-third. That's probably what's, assuming what's going on here, and this is probably a younger brother, and he's thinking, hey, that's not fair. Why does he get more than I do? He sees Jesus stirring some things up, you know, doing some different things on the Sabbath, kind of upsetting some of the Mosaic laws that he's used to, and so he's thinking, hey, maybe Jesus can sort this out for me, and even, even some odds here, I'll get, I'll get half the inheritance. Now, how does Jesus respond to him? Well, he warns everyone present against covetousness. Now, that is desiring what doesn't rightfully belong to us. And twice, Paul actually directly identifies covetousness with idolatry. He says, you may be sure of this, uh, sorry, in Ephesians 5, uh, verse 5, he says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's pretty harsh. And he says as well in Colossians chapter 3, which some of you will have been uh, reading along with us. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now you might think, why is it so bad to, you know, sometimes want that thing that my neighbor has? You know, they've got a really nice house, they've got a really nice car, you know, oh, it might be nice to have a boat too, right? It's, it's not that bad, right, to want some of these things. But Jesus goes on to tell them this story. So verse 16, he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, and I will build larger ones. And then I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now that sounds pretty good, actually. You work hard now, you save up, and you get to retire early, right? You spend the rest of the time on the golf course, traveling the world, hanging out with friends. I mean, that's, that's the dream, isn't it? Right? I mean, isn't that the thing that most of us are actually striving for in one way or another? Like, oh, if I can just, just get that next thing, I can, I can settle down and life will be great. And here's where we might expect Jesus to, you know, quote from something like Proverbs 6, right? He's, where it says, consider the ant. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. 
But that's not what happens. He doesn't commend the man for his uh, prudent savings. Verse 20, God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So in this parable, we have a rich man, and his land produces plentifully, presumably more than it would in an average year. And it's so much, in fact, that he says, well, I can't even store it all. I've got so much food, I've got so much stuff, I don't even have a place to put it. So I need more storage. So he gets more storage for himself, he stores it up, and thinks, oh, yes, look how much stuff I have. I don't even need to work anymore. I've got years and years worth of supplies here. I can just kick back and enjoy life. This is, this is wonderful. But we see Jesus giving this very different interpretation. One, Jesus doesn't actually give him responsibility for the production of his wealth. But he does hold him accountable for it. Right? So he says that, one, he's already a rich man, but he says the land produced plentifully. It's not even him who's making this happen, right? Just his land produced a lot of goods. Suddenly he had all these goods. But he gets to the end, and his life is required of him. This is the language of a debt that is required to be paid. And so we see that Jesus doesn't give him responsibility for the production of his wealth, right? He doesn't give him credit for it, but he does hold him accountable for what he does with it. That his life is owed to another, and he owes his whole life uh, to God. And how often do we think the opposite? How often do we take credit for our wealth, for our accomplishments, and then we deny any responsibility for what we do with it? Right? It's mine. I earned it. I don't owe this to anybody. You can't tell me what to do with it. We seek after money and wealth and these things, so we think they're going to they're gonna make us happy. They're going to give us that thing that we want the most. We talked about this last week. Uh, Robert talked about how the Pharisees were, were seeking payment, power, and privilege. Right? These, these status positions in society. Um, and aren't we all kind of coveting those things and yearning after those things in some form or another? But Jesus gives us an alternative. The alternative is not to strive after wealth, but to strive after the kingdom. So this is the one who lays up treasure for himself in heaven, or for himself and is not rich toward God. What is the alternative? To seek after the kingdom. So verse 22, he says to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can have even a single hour to a span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, then why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so loves the grass which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So Jesus gives us two uh, other models, right? We've got the first model, which is this rich man who seems really prudent and wise, and he gets this abundance, and he stores it up for himself. 
And then Jesus gives us two different images of really very fleeting things, right? And things that we wouldn't ordinarily uh, imagine as models for our lives. The first is some birds. Now, unlike the ant in Proverbs, uh, birds don't really store up, right? I mean, they build their nests, which that takes some, some time and planning, and, and they do migrate sometimes, and that ex- requires a little bit of forward thinking. But for the most part, uh, they just go around eating all day, right? They just, just deal with one thing as it comes along uh, throughout the day. And we've had the privilege uh, during these last 10 weeks or so of, of being home and having a little more time to, to really witness both of these things, actually. The first, with these birds, we've been watching uh, the robins pull the worms out of the ground. So we, we see them all day, and Eleanor loves them, so, robins, robins! We're always watching them, and, and that's what they do. They're not rushed, they're not hurried. They just hop along, find some worms, eat them, take them back to the nest. Um, it's, it's pretty relaxed. They don't really seem to be worried about what they're going to do in six months from now. They're just worried about the next worm. And they're not afraid that the worm supply is suddenly going to dry up. Right? They just, they just keep going out and expecting more worms, just like they did yesterday. Similarly, uh, the flowers. So Eleanor and I were going for walks most mornings, pretty much the same, same walk. And we always stop and look at the flowers along the way in different houses. And there's one house that has some beautiful daffodils and tulips out front. And they first uh, popped up and back in April. They just kind of popped up out of the ground out of nowhere. Suddenly there was beautiful yellow tulips. Uh, or sorry, well, tulips and uh, daffodils. And, you know, we'd, we'd stop and we admire them every time. And, and we talk about them. And, but we were walking by a few days ago. And these bright, beautiful yellow daffodils are withered and brown. They faded. They're gone. That was it. Right? Just this short span of life, and yet they were beautiful uh, in the moments that they were there. And so, in these two aspects, we see uh, these two contrasts. We see God set, or Jesus setting up here. I think um, I want to pull out two things. I think distinguish these forms of striving. One is this language of division, and we see this a few places here. And I try not to make too much of of word studies, but uh, you know, I was reading through this and looking at some of the Greek words, and, and you do see some cool stuff that Jesus is doing here. So the first, uh, this man comes up to him and asks Jesus to divide the inheritance. Now this is this word, merizo, with, um, which myriology uh, mir- is the, the study of parts and wholes, right? It's dividing things into parts. And so merizo means to divide or apportion. So he says, divide up, you know, divide up this inheritance for me. And Jesus responds, he says, am I the apportioner? This word, Mary stays. Am I the divider? Right? Do, do I divide things up between you and your brother or, or whatever? So we've got that in this part of the story. And then Jesus goes on and talks about not being anxious. And the connection, you know, might seem, there might be some thematic connection there, but there's actually some interesting wordplay going on here. Because the word for anxious comes from the same root, Mary. It's, it's merimnao, which means to, to be divided, to be drawn in different directions. That's what it is to be anxious. And we see this uh, in Luke chapter 16, just a, a couple chapters later. Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so we see uh, in this covetousness, this striving after worldly things, is it actually divides us within ourselves. It causes us to be anxious. And Jesus is calling people instead to follow him with this wholehearted devotion. And this is a theme where we've seen throughout this whole series that we're going we're gonna to conclude the series uh, with this soon, that this 
Jesus is calling people to follow him with, to lay down their whole lives in following him. But instead, we see this man who's concerned, who's divided, who's anxious about all of his earthly goods. And they're actually keeping him back from following Jesus. Another contrast here we see uh, is, I think, a, a relationship of thinking about time. So this, I was reminded of this as we were reading through C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters this week. Uh, we're going through this as a staff, and if you're unfamiliar with this unusual book, uh, it's, it's supposed to be written as a series of letters from a, a senior demon to a junior demon instructing him how to attempt, how to tempt his assigned human. So it's kind of odd, but it has some really cool insights into uh, human psychology and, and religious life, like our spirituality. And in this strange medium, Lewis offers uh, this profound insight. Uh, this is the uh, demon speaking. He says, the humans live in time, but our enemy, which is God, destines them to eternity. He therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and to the point of time which they call the present. For the present is the moment at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment, and of it only, humans have an experience analogous to the experience which our enemy has of reality as a whole. In it alone, freedom and actuality are offered them. He would therefore have them continually concerned either with eternity, which means being concerned with him, or with the present, either meditating on their eternal union with or, or separation from himself, or else obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, giving thanks for the present pleasure. And so he's saying that because God is present to everything all at once, uh, where this sort of eternal now is, is one uh, phrase people use, that's what it's like when we are present in the moment. We're experiencing reality almost in a, kind of like the way God experiences reality. It's, act, it's real for us in that moment. It's not the past which has already happened and is gone. It's not the future which is yet to come and may or may not happen in different ways. No, it's here. It's now. That's the thing that is real for us in this moment. And so he goes on to say, in contrast, he says, uh, we want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end. Never honest, nor kind, nor happy now, but always using as mere fuel wherewith to heap the altar of the future, every real gift which is offered them in the present. So instead of taking the things that we've received as gifts from God for this present moment, we store them up for the future, for that good life that we might have someday. But the birds, they live in the present. They get their food one moment at a time. And this is how Jesus teaches us to live in faith. He teaches us to pray, Father, give us our daily bread, not make us independently wealthy. But how often do we really hope for the latter? How often do we strive for the latter of those two? It doesn't mean that we don't prepare for the future at all, but we prepare for the future right now in the present. We live in the present, trusting God for the future. And so how do we strive after the kingdom rather than striving after wealth. In verse 32, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, we can strive after this, the kingdom by receiving it as a gift. 
This is the grace of the gospel. Mm -hmm. That in Jesus Christ, the Father gives us the kingdom. He gives it to us as this gift in which we don't deserve, which we've done nothing to earn, which we never could do anything to earn. But we see in in the incarnation, the ministry, the teaching, the, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, that God inaugurates his kingdom which is not like the kingdom of this world, but strives after uh, wealth and the future. But when we put our faith in him, we receive this kingdom as a gift, and we become citizens of that kingdom. Citizens who live in faith, in light of this God, who is generously giving us uh, all that we need. And when we do this, we realize that our whole life is a gift. Everything we have, it's merely on loan to us. And so we're held accountable for what we do with it. Just like that rich man, one day our souls will be required of us because they don't belong to us. Our life does not belong to us. It belongs to the one who created and made us and loves us and knows us. And so we owe him all of it. And a really practical way to do this is Jesus says to actually give your money away, right? He says, you receive the kingdom by selling your possessions and giving it to the needy. And so we, we give away our wealth, be it small or large. What we're saying is that this is all a gift. My whole life is a gift, a purely a gift of grace. And so I owe all of it to God to be used for the benefit of others. This is why Jesus can say, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Because they know what it is to rely and uh, depend upon the grace of God in every moment. So that's my encouragement to you this morning, is to seek after the kingdom. If you uh, are a Christian, that you would uh, hear this both as a, a con- uh, something to convict you, to challenge you. How am I using my whole life, all of my resources, everything I have for the kingdom? Am I giving what I have away for the benefit of others? And if you're not a Christian and you're and you're wondering, what, what, how do I become a citizen of this kingdom? This kingdom where people uh, are generous instead of hoarding, who live in the freedom of the present, because they don't have to worry about the future, because they have a God who cares for them. Well, you do that by receiving it, by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he's done on the cross, and receiving uh, the gift of grace, which is totally free to us, just like our whole lives are a free gift. And if you want to know more about that, please uh, reach, reach out to us, and we'd love to talk to you more about what that means and what that looks like. So I've got a few kind of more practical questions here that I want to, to jump into, and uh, feel free, please, if you haven't already, to uh, put some questions on the Facebook uh, live stream, and we would love to respond to those if we can, uh, either right now or later this week. So uh, one of the, the counter questions I first thought of was, does this mean that God is always going to provide for us? Right? If God is always going to give us the things we need? In one sense, yes. Um, Jesus does say that God provides for all of creation. So why not us as well? And we see this supremely in Christ himself. We can see God's trustworthiness and faithfulness. Romans uh, chapter 8, Paul puts it this way. And many of you will be familiar with this passage. But he says in verse 31, What then should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So, 
In Christ, we see God's enduring faithfulness and abundant generosity to his creation, who, despite of our rejection of God, actually gives himself to us unto death. How could God be more generous than that? We can't. It gives us every reason to trust God's character and God's ability to provide. And yet, at the same time, disease and drought destroys the birds and the flowers. Time destroys the flowers as we sow. Life is full of suffering and uncertainty, just as our present moment. And we don't know what six months from now is going to look like, or even what tomorrow is going to look like. None of it is guaranteed for us. And Paul recognizes this, and we read on a few verses later. He says, Christ, Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So Paul acknowledges these realities, but still presses in and saying, yeah, but God is faithful. In Philippians 4, uh, I think we often, this is one of those we often take out of context, but uh, verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 11, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the Bible doesn't shy away from the harsh reality of our fallen existence. But it does call us to trust and hope in God through it all. Knowing that sin and death have been defeated on the cross and in the resurrection. And someday God is going to wipe away all the tears. Someday he's going to make all things new. And we can put our hope right now in this moment that God is controlling the future. One more question here. Uh, how do I know when to be generous and when to save for the future? This is really hard. Um, there's not a simple answer for this. And I think that's, I mean, once it's as good, I think this would be an ongoing wrestling that we should just always be asking ourselves uh, as, as Christians. I think you have to prayerfully discern through this. Um, a couple of maybe slightly crazy thoughts that at least would, could get you thinking. Um, one is to uh, hold yourself accountable by maybe involving others in the process. It's kind of a weird thing to think about, but maybe be transparent with your finances uh, with some friends and family. And that would help you be accountable for how you spend them, right? I mean, what if people could see your checkbook and see what you, how you put, spent your money? I mean, that, I don't know. I don't know if I'd want people to see that, but, but it, it's like, well, should I have bought that thing? Should I have invested here? Should I have spent money on, on that? And I think we need to be asking ourselves those questions. Another one, I think, really tying into this particular passage we see with the rich man is some kind of almost like a, a max income, right? This is just kind of a... Something I've been toiling with for ourselves, toying around with this idea, and I don't know exactly what this would look like, but, but setting some kind of max salary for yourself, right? I mean, this man was already rich. He already had a barn, which clearly was more than enough. But it wasn't enough, because it never is. So he bought a bigger barn, or he made a bigger barn, because that's the problem, is, is enough is never enough. And we always want more. And we're so quick to, to consistently just adapt to a, a, a more wealthy lifestyle, which then requires more wealth to maintain. And... And on and on and on. And so I wonder, what, what, if, we, what if you just set like a max amount? Like, like this is enough to live on. This is, this is, we're just going to live with this, this number. And then everything else on top of that, right? The, whatever raises, whatever thing, just give it away. Like, hey, the barn's full. Why, why do I need a bigger barn? Mm -hmm. Just give it away. There are plenty of people who need it. 
And then that's how you continue to trust in God that God is going to provide again uh, tomorrow instead of building a bigger barn so that you can find your security in your own possessions. So just a couple thoughts out there. Uh, any, is that it? All right. Well, thank you very much. Robert's going to come lead us in some prayer.